Okay. Um, we're coming today to start a whole new section of the book on the doctrine of the church. It's actually a pretty large section. Um, I want to say a word about where um, the chapter for today comes in the overall structure of the book. But let me show you so that you don't get anxious and, well, what about this, what about this, what about this, what about this? Today is just introduction um, on the doctrine of the church. But the chapters in this book about the church are the church, its nature and marks, that's what we do today. Uh, the purity and unity of the church, church discipline, church offices, church government, baptism, the Lord's Supper, worship, mission, and ministry. We're going to cover all that stuff over the next, how many are there, nine? Over the next nine weeks. So you may have a lot of questions that have to do with some of this other stuff just as we begin our intro today, and I'm not going to answer them because Jason will answer some and Larry will answer some and Pastor Thad will answer some. And um, so there's a lot to come yet in the doctrine of the church. We're just going to, we're just going to sort of scratch the surface um, today. So... We're going to talk about the nature and marks of the church. And this is the church, right? No. No. It's a building. Is that what it is? It's a building. It's a place where the it's a place where the church meets. Um, we we talk about that all the time. Inadvertently, don't we? I'm going up to the church building. It's where I'm going. If I go up to the church, I get you y'all y'all gotta get together and I'll come to you. I told Pastor Ted once that I was gonna go up and clean the church and he said, I thought that was the Holy Spirit's job. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we we use that term sometimes more loosely than we ought. The church is not the building, it is the people. Right? It's the people. Um, so I want to begin with a couple of introductory thoughts this morning. One is pretty brief. The other is a little bit longer, but it's still introductory. And the first is in the form of a question. Why does the doctrine of the church follow immediately after the doctrine of salvation? It's not by accident. Part one, doctrine of the word. Part two, doctrine of God. Part three, doctrine of God's creatures. Part four, doctrine of God the Son. Part five, doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Part six, doctrine of salvation. Part seven, doctrine of the church. Why does it come right after the doctrine of salvation? Anybody have an idea about that? Other than Jason. Well, I have a thought about that. It's interesting to me. <clears throat> that um, this is also the order in in one of the classic systematic theologies of the last many decades, Burkhoff's systematic theology. It's the same order in his book. Um, it's the same order in Wayne Grudem's newer systematic theology, the doctrine of salvation, the doctrine of the church. My thought about that is that Christianity was never meant to be lived in isolation. So once you become a Christian, the dawn of salvation, 
where should you find yourself very, very quickly? In the church. So I, I'm persuaded that these guys ordered those things the way they did, especially when they got to the salvation doctrine of the church, because from the very beginning, our lives are meant to be lived out in community. Yes, sir. Yes, I did. Thanks. Thank you for that not being a question. I mean about this. <laughs> um, so those who think little of the church, who shy away from commitment to an involvement in the church, are out of step with the Bible's emphasis on the church. I love Jesus. What did Jesus love? Class? He loved the church and gave himself up for her. So don't go on and on and on about I love Jesus and you have no time for the church. And I think that's at least part of the reason why the doctrine of the church comes right after the doctrine of salvation because once a person is converted, once they're saved, they ought to be where? Involved in the local church. Okay? That's my first very brief introductory thought. My second one is a little bit longer and you're probably going to wonder where on earth is he going with this? But there is a point, and we'll get there, okay? Um, the chapter begins in a book where our author outlines two very divergent views of the church. One view says that there is no connection, period, end of discussion between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. Two entirely different entities, two entirely different, dare I use the word, dispensations, when God dealt with Israel this way, that's over and done, and now we got the church on the scene, and it's a whole new ballgame. And the other view, that the, the church simply did not exist under the Old Covenant and did not come into existence until the coming Christ, and more particularly Pentecost. The other view says that the church began with either Adam or Abraham, and I'm, I'm not prepared to debate that issue. Um, it's relatively minor. Um, but the church began with either Adam or Abraham, depending on your view of the Old Covenant, and has continued right on through the coming of Christ at Pentecost. It has always been one body with more similarities than differences. And there, these are the, I've given you the two extremes. <clears throat> there, I'm getting there. Okay. Well, maybe. I don't know what you're talking about, but... That's possible, but there's still two separate entities in that view. And God is working here and he's working here. But they're combined from both. You know, the same root, same olive. Right, right. That ha that's more of a uh, eschatological question. Yeah. Um, that's what I was yeah, so I'll, I'll show you where I'm going to land here in just a second. Okay. So which is it? 
the first view is often associated with the dispensational view of Scripture. The second is more often associated with a covenantal view of Scripture. One sees much more diversity, and one sees much more unity and continuity. Our author, as he often does, the dirty rat, does not answer the question. He gives a couple little hints later on in the chapter, but he doesn't come right out and say, it's this or it's this. So we've got to make up our minds. So <clears throat> I'd like to take a few minutes to see just how the church came to be, not to settle every question about the differences between dispensational and covenant theology, but to appreciate the unity of Scripture and the unity of what God has been doing from the get-go since the beginning, and to appreciate the progress and the changes that have marked the history of redemption. So I want to talk a little bit about the history of redemption. And you'll see where I'm going, I hope, when I get there. But right now you're thinking, what does this have to do with the church? Well, it actually has a lot to do with the church. So um, the history of redemption is the history of what God has been doing since the beginning. And guess where that history is recorded? It's recorded in the Bible. So we got Genesis to Malachi, that Old Testament period. Then we have the coming of Christ. We have the Gospels, Acts and Epistles, and Revelation. Now what is all that about? What, how, how does that history unfold? Well, the Old Testament was preparation for what? For the coming of Christ. This is all, this is, where's the focus of this thing? And you'll see it even more when I get more stuff up here. Where's the focus? The focus is right here. Right? So, we've got preparation, and then we've got execution, the carrying out. Not execution like, but execution like execute the plan, carry it out. Okay, the Gospels describe how the plan of redemption was carried out. We get to Acts and the Epistles, and it's the application of that work Jesus did. It's the application of redemption. And, and Acts and Epistles tells us how that first unfolded, and, and then in the Epistles we, we learn what does that mean for how we live in, in our whole Christian lives. And it's going to come to completion in eternity. And that's the picture Revelation sets for us. Now, do you, know, do you notice something about preparation, execution, application, completion, eternity? P-E-A-C-E. -E. What did Jesus accomplish? What did he secure for us in the work of redemption? Peace between us and God, between God and us. Okay, that's what he accomplished along with a whole bunch of other things in redemption. I don't know about you, but this old mind needs as many pegs as I can have to hang things on so I, so I see the flow of the history of redemption. So we're in, in, in the Old Testament, we're in that period of preparation. In the Gospels, the plan is being carried out, it's being executed. In Acts and the Epistles, it's being applied. We see what it means, and it's going to come to completion in eternity. Now, what else we got here? Um, the period of preparation, and I apologize, it's so small, but I've got to keep it small to get it all on here. That says Adam and covenant of works. And I'm not going to debate the whole issue of whether covenants and 
all that, or, and whether there was a covenant of works, that term is not found in the Bible. Neither is the term covenant of grace, but I'll make an argument for that in just a minute. Adam was put in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, and he was given something to do. Don't take the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. He failed miserably in that. The covenant was broken. And, and, and it, what did it do? Ruin was passed on. When Adam broke the covenant of works, ruin was passed on to the entire human race. We're all plunged into sin. What happened immediately after Adam fell? I mean, right on the heels of God coming to Adam in the garden and say, what did you do? He steps in with a gracious promise, doesn't he? Where is that promise found? Genesis, Genesis 3.15. So God steps in right after Adam broke the covenant of works and fell and passed ruin on to everybody with Genesis 3.15, this gracious promise, which I'm going to call, as it works out in history, the covenant of grace. Now, there's so many, th there's so many things to say here. Um, let me see what's coming up next. Okay, I'm going to hang on to that. Um, why do we say that the overarching theme of all the rest of history from the fall onward is the covenant of grace? That terms I found about where do we get it? The covenant is a sworn promise sovereignly administered. It's a sworn promise, sovereignly administered. It comes from God to man. It's not a dialogue between parties, parties coming to a mutual agreement. It is often sealed with blood. Uh, there are often stipulations, requirements. Don't eat the fruit of the tree. Or the Ten Commandments. There are requirements. There are stipulations. There are often sanctions, penalties, if the stipulations are not kept. The curses of the covenant. Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. The children of Israel were driven out of the promised land, carried captive to Babylon. The death of Christ was the curse of the, of the covenant for all of our covenant violations. But at its root, the covenant is a sworn promise sovereignly administered. So, once Adam violated covenant works, we were sunk, the whole human race. But what follows after he fell? A promise, a gracious promise. Genesis 3.15, a redeemer is going to come. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. That's a promise of redemption. And it's gracious. He didn't owe it to us. We didn't earn it. You don't see Adam and Eve scrambling in the garden and say, oh God, wait, 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 wait. Oh, we didn't mean it, we didn't mean it. Please give us another chance. No. They were cooked. They were done for. And God sovereignly steps in with a promise. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. In Adam we forfeited everything, but God came right back in with a gracious promise to redeem. So, is it a stretch to say that the history of redemption is the outworking of a covenant of grace overarching all of history from the fall to its completion in eternity? Listen to the words. Well, I can't, I can't do that first. Um, 
I've got to show you the rest of, of, of how that covenant of grace worked out in history, okay? And I hope you see, I hope you see some unity and some development and some progress here. Um, not long after God made that promise in Genesis 3.15, he made another covenant with Noah for the preservation of the race. So that what could happen? So, so there could be redemption. There had to be somebody to redeem. And eventually for Jesus to be born. So the race was preserved. Deserved to be preserved? No. I mean, look how wicked everything got in the days of Noah. And that's why God came down and just wiped the whole thing out except for eight people. But he preserved the race. And then there comes the covenant with Abraham. And that was all about a redeemer promised. Your seed, Abraham. The nations are going to be blessed through your seed. And who is the seed of Abraham? Jesus. All right? Then there was covenant with Moses. And that's rules prescribed. So that, so that all of us would understand how desperately we need a redeemer because we are violators of the covenant law breakers all of us and Jesus came and he kept all the rules every last one of them for us and he gives that to us in a great transaction of justification so covenant with, no, uh, with Moses rules prescribed covenant with David royalty is perpetuated David was the what king. king and his throne was going to be established forever there's a king coming as the song says with a sword in his fist <laughs> remember that that's an Andrew Peterson song for those of you who don't keep up with that um, royalty perpetuated the king is going to come and secure redemption for all of his people and then, what's the next covenant? It's new. In the new covenant, redemption is perfected. Jesus is the mediator of the better covenant. And the, and the law is written on our hearts. It's, it's, better. it's better in every way. And Jesus is the mediator. Now, do you see a flow to the history of redemption there? And it's all... All of, all of these things are the various outworkings of this great overarching covenant of grace which came in right after Adam fell and God made this gracious promise. There's going to be a redeemer. And then he developed that promise over this whole course of history until we get here when the redeemer came, which was the fulfillment of the new covenant that Jeremiah prophesied and redemption is perfected. In the new covenant. So. Where do I get all that? Well I've. Been reading my Bible. <laughs> but. Ephesians 2. Says therefore. Remember. That formerly you the Gentiles in the flesh are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands remember that you were at that time separate from Christ excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants 
plural, of promise, singular, having no hope and without God in the world. There's a reference to covenants of promise. Covenants of promise. Where God promised graciously to send a redeemer. And then he works that out in history through the development of these various covenant relationships, all of which have to do with this, the coming of Christ. So, what in the world does all of that have to do with the doctrine of the church? Well, I hope it helps us answer the question our author posed at the beginning of this chapter. Um, let me let me let me let me show you, let me let me summarize some of that stuff for you. Okay, in Adam, ruin was passed on. In Noah, the race was preserved. In Adam, redeemer the redeemer was promised. In Moses, rules were prescribed. David, royalty was perpetuated. The new covenant redemption was perfected. There's a flow. There's a development. There is it all just cookie cutter the same? No. There's changes. There's development. There's progress, okay? But there's flow, there's unity. There's, there's the same thing going on in the Old Covenant. The setting of the Old Covenant was redemption from Egypt. In the New Covenant, it's redemption from sin. Why, why, is, this, why is this like this? Because the Old Covenant was shadows. And the New Covenant is bright and crystal clear. The seed of the old covenant was the literal seed of Abraham. New covenant, spiritual seed of Abraham. Substance, law and tables of stone, law in the heart. Sins, remembered, new covenant, forgiven. The sign of the old covenant, circumcision of the flesh, circumcision of the heart. The sacrifice, bulls and goats, Christ himself. So, you see there's, there, there, there's flow, there's development, but there's, there's newness. There's change. Right? That's been the mark of redemptive history from the get-go. There's flow and unity and there's change and development and progress. <clears throat> Does it mean that what happened way back here is totally separate from what happens here? In those radical views of the separation of the church and this, no. No. Is there newness? Yes. Is there development? Yes. Are there changes? Yes. But it's one flow of redemptive history. And that's, that's, uh, that's all I'm trying to say. So the answer, up oh, one more, service, um, elaborate and external and new covenant inward and spiritual. Um, so Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church, what's the relationship? The New Testament church grows out of. It's a continuation. There's been one people of God forever. Not too distinct. Are there distinctions? Yes, there are distinctions. But it's one people of God. Out of the gate. On. That's my answer to his question. 
It's not one or the other. It's, it's a little bit of a middle ground in between where the church grows out of the people of God in the Old Testament. So the church is a continuation of what God has been doing all along with some new features that are simply appropriate for where we are in the history of redemption. We could say that it's the same, only different. Right? Um, we could say it's old and it's new. It's not this drastic shift in God's plan to an entirely new effort, nor is it exactly the same in every detail to what God was doing under the old covenant before Jesus came. It's progress, it's development, and I think that'll be more clear as you take a look at the nature of the church. So now we're going to actually get into the lesson. Okay? Does that help, does that help you see that there's been this flow, a unity, of, 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 but development at the same time? So that the church is the same and it's different. Is that okay? All right, here we go. The word for church. All of you Greek scholars pronounce that word, please. Ekklesia. Called out ones. Literally called out ones. The, the, this, is a, this is a prefix. means out of. This comes from the verb to call. Called out of. The church of the called out ones, simply, very simply put, um, it's assembly. It's used of the crowd that gathered during the riot in Ephesus. And the town clerk got everybody quiet and, and, and he dismissed the assembly. That's the word church. He dismissed the gathering. It's, 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 a, gather, it's a gathering. They're not called out. <coughs> They're called out, out of this to this. That's, that's critical to this word. It's, a, it's an assembly, people coming together. That's what the church is. Um, it's used in the Septuagint. Who, what's the Septuagint? Septuagint, Septuagint. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Old Testament in Hebrew, New Testament in Greek. Not everybody read Hebrew, so a bunch of guys got together and wrote a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, in a number of places, the word ecclesia is used for the Israel, for the people of God, for the assembly of the people of God. It's the most commonly used word in the New Testament for the church. It's used about 125 times, an assembly of called out ones. Now, that comes to expression in um, lots and lots of ways. I actually had that verse up there. There was not a word of all that Moses commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. That's the word in the Septuagint for church. The assembly of Israel. When they gathered together. Okay. Um, use most common New Testament for church. Assembly of called out ones. Now, that, is, that comes to various expressions in the New Testament. We talk about the universal church, sometimes called invisible. All the saints from every age, whether alive or already in heaven. The word church is used to describe that body of people, dead and alive, from the start to the end. Okay? Um, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, Love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
What does the word church there mean? Did Jesus give himself up only for the saints in Ephesus? Man, I hope not. Did Jesus love Noah? Did Jesus love Abraham? Did he love Moses? Did he love Joshua? Did he love David? You want to keep naming people? Did he love Daniel? Did he love Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He loved two. Remarkable, most remarkable thing on the planet. He loved the church. You mean you mean Abraham's a member of the church? You bet your boots he is. <laughs> yeah. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego belong to the same church I belong to? Yes, they do. And man, don't you want to talk to those three guys someday? So the church, one of its expressions is the universal or the invisible church. All the saints from every age, whether alive or already in heaven. But that's not the only way the word church is used. It comes to visible expression. This is the church as it's seen on earth, the tangible, physical, visible, earthly entity, but not confined to one specific location. Okay? The visible church. So, the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase, Acts 9.31. The church throughout all Judea. That's not a particular body. It's the church that was scattered out all over this realm known as this geographical location known as Judea. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given to you, the churches of Macedonia. There's more than one. So the church is comes to visible expression in sometimes large geographic areas, but it also comes to local expression. This is the church, the called out ones who gather together in a specific geographic location, probably the most common and familiar use of the term. Now, the word Antioch in the church that was there. That's a visible local expression of the church. And when they appointed elders for them in every church, having prayed with fasting, they commended to the Lord in whom they had believed. When they appointed elders in every church. Paul's meeting with, um, uh, he's talking about the churches of Asia Minor that Paul visited on his missionary journeys. Um, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. A particular visible local expression of the body of Christ. So there are these various expressions of the church, universal or invisible, um, visible, and local. That's a shift, isn't it, from the Old Testament? Sure it is. 
but it's still in that same flow of redemptive history. So let's think a little bit about some of the descriptions of the church. How's the church described and referred to in the Bible? And um, these are so, I, I think these are, are really encouraging. Um, the church is described in the Bible as the people of God. And some of these designations will show us, again, the, the, the connection between the Old Testament, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people of God in the New Testament. The church is called the people of God. I'm going to give you a familiar text in a minute from 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But first, I want to show you that Peter is writing to the church. Peter doesn't open his first letter with, to the church of God, which is at whatever. In fact, the word church doesn't even occur in 1 Peter. But is he writing to the church? And does what he say in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 have to do with the church? And the answer is yes. So how, how do we get that? Let's look carefully at what Peter does say. Notice to those, those to me writes. I'm going to read 1 Peter 1, 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. He's writing to those who reside as aliens. And that's what Christians are called in relation to this world. We're, we're strangers and aliens, right? Our citizenship is in heaven. To those who reside as aliens scattered throughout these areas, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Those are areas of Asia Minor. Um, and we know from the book of Acts and from Paul's letters to the Galatians that there were churches in Galatia as well as other parts of Asia Minor. And when Peter gets to the end of his first letter in chapter 5, who does he exhort specifically? He addresses the elders among them to shepherd the flock of God. And he urges the young men to submit to their elders. Elders are what? Officers of the church. church. Well, Peter's writing to the church. Probably to several churches. But that's who he's writing to, okay? We good? Peter's writing to churches in Asia Minor. And look at what he says in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness and his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The church is called the people of God a people of his own possession. This is one of those unmistakable ties to the Old Covenant that indicates continuity from Old to New Covenant. Exodus 19, 5 and 6. Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Does that sound familiar? A kingdom of priests and a holy nation? Where did we just read that? In 1 Peter chapter 2? 
These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. Um, then Exodus 6, 7. Then I will take you for my people. And I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will take you for my people. But this is my covenant which I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. That was a promise Jeremiah made. Before it had come to pass, it was of a day yet to come, and it was looking to that day when Jesus would come and accomplish redemption and send his Holy Spirit and call both Jews and Gentiles out of darkness into light to be his people. The church is the people of God. Israel was called the people of God. So there's that continuity, there's that flow. <clears throat> there's an interesting statement we've all read in Acts 2.41 after the outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. So then those who had received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. Have you ever asked yourself the question, added to what? Added to what? The people of God. <laughs> added to what? To that little remnant of about 120 persons. At the same time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together. That was before the actual outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They were, they were in discussions about replacing Judas as one of the apostles. And there were about 120 people gathered there. Was that all the Christians? On the face of the earth? No, certainly not. Was that word gathering? Um, I don't think so. I'd, I'd have to go double check, but I, I don't think it is. But they were added to what? Larry, you've got your Greek New Testament there, don't you? Um, check that out in uh, Acts one fifteen. If it were if it were ecclesia, I think they would use the word assembly if they were not specifically referring to the church as an entity. but um, So they were added to what? It, it's not. It's not Ecclesia, thank you. These first New Covenant converts were added to this little group of Old Covenant converts and they became the church at Jerusalem. Who are those 120 people? Technically. They were Old Covenant Christians. They were Old Covenant believers. And all these new converts were added to this little group of Old Covenant believers. Which helps us understand the flow and the unity of the people of God from, from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. Yes, there are differences. The organization is different with elders and deacons. We don't, have, we don't have tribes and heads of tribes and priests and all that sort of thing. The organization is different with elders and deacons. The place of meeting is different. It's no longer a temple. The day of meeting is different. It's going to switch to the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. The worship is different. No more elaborate trappings and veils and sacrifices and incense. 
No more limited priesthood. There's now the priesthood of all believers. The worshipers are different. Under the old covenant, every Israelite belonged to that covenant, whether they were believers or not. But now every member of the new covenant has the law written on their hearts and are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Yes, it's different. But it is still the people of God. We're a continuation of what God was doing under the old covenant. It's new and it's better, but its roots go all the way back to God making the seed of Abraham a people for his own possession. Except that now we're not the physical seed, but the spiritual seed of Abraham. We are this motley crew right here. We are the people of God. How cool is that? Can you believe it? That we? Do you know who you really are? You're a mess. And I'm a bigger mess than you. But we are the people of God. Deuteronomy 4, 7. Moses is talking to the children of Israel before they went to the promised land. And he wants them to understand who they are. And he says, he says, Deuteronomy 4, 7. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God whenever we call upon him? He wants them to understand who, who you guys are. Is there a nation like you anywhere on the planet that has a God so near as is the Lord our God to us whenever we call upon him? Translate that to today. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us when we call upon him? We are the people of God. We better never get over that. Because that's who we are. The people of God. And we are the body of Christ. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body. The fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the body of Christ. That has tons of applications. May I read them to you? 1 Corinthians 12. I didn't put it up here because it's long. Freeman as the body is one, and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not a part of the body. It is not for this reason any of the less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body. It is not for this reason any of the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members and one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. 
And those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor. And our unseemly members come to have more abundant seemliness, whereas our seemly members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. Isn't that just remarkable? What are you? A nostril? An earlobe? You know there's all different kinds of earlobes, don't you? It's attached and unattached and saggers and huggers and what are you? An eyebrow? A mouth? A foot? A big toe? A little pinky? What are you? You're a member of the body. And we're all in this together. The church is the body of Christ. And individually members of it. There's, there's so many places we could take that. Huge implications for the diversity and unity of the body. Nobody is indispensable. The church is not supposed to be made up of a few people who do most of the work and a whole bunch of people who come sit down and go home. Don't come sit down and go home. Did y'all hear what I said? Don't come sit down and go home. You're a part of this body. And I need you. The more shocking thing is that you need me too. The church is the body of Christ. That's huge. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. But speaking the truth in love, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by that which every joint supplies. According to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. If you come, sit down, and go home, you're hurting the body. You hear me? If you come, you know what I mean, you come, sit down, and go home, you're just not connected. If you come, sit down, and go home, you are hurting the body. You're not, you're not working properly together with the whole body. The body grows when, when each individual part is working properly. The body grows when it's being filled and head together, held together by that which every joint supplies. We are the poorer for your coming, sitting down, and going home. You are the poorer for your coming, sitting down, and going home. Don't do that. You are part of the body. Be what you are. You're, you're not all disjointed, are you sitting there? 
And when you get up, all your parts are going with you. Right? Davy, when you get up, don't leave your feet there, okay? Because somebody's going to trip over them. No. We are the body of Christ. And if that's not enough to knock you over, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. We are the people of God. We're the body of Christ. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. Do, not, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy. And that is what you are. All the you pronouns in this text are plural. We can't tell the difference in English and Greek. The difference is obvious. They're all plural pronouns. Y'all are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What's the upshot of that? When we gather to worship, we're coming into the presence of God. He is really here. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And God by His Spirit is actually here. What does that call for? He is actually here. What does that call for? Well, that calls for some real joy that we should come into His presence. Hot dog. How remarkable, amazing, unspeakably magnificent is it that we should be in the very presence of God. And it's not confined just to the Holy of Holies where only the high priest went once a year with all the stuff and the blood and the incense and the whole nine yards. The veil is torn. The, the God is here. And we come into his presence. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That calls for joy that we should be able to come into His presence and it also calls for some pretty profound reverence and awe and humility because we are in the presence of God. And so what does the Psalms say to us? Psalm 2, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. We're not real good at either one of those, are we? We're probably a little better at rejoicing we're not too good at trembling. When was the last time you were shaking in your boots when you walked in and sat down in the presence of God? Rejoice with trembling. Um, so the church is the body of Christ um, it is uh, the people of God and it's the temple of the Holy Spirit and I'm just going to touch on this ever so briefly the marks of the church this is something that developed over time as heresies began to appear so that the true church could be distinguished from false churches that arose around some of those heresies identifying the marks of the church became more prominent around the time of the Reformation due to the massive influence of the Roman Catholic Church if you remember church history, the Roman Catholic Church worked pretty hard to actually keep the Bible out of the hands of the people because they were supposedly not qualified to read and understand it. 
And in some respects, like the Pharisees of Jesus' day, traditions were sometimes elevated to have the same authority as Scripture. So, one of the marks of the true church to distinguish it from false churches was the faithful preaching of the word and a clear articulation of the gospel. That's one of the marks of the church. The faithful preaching of the word and a clear articulation of the gospel to distinguish the church from false churches, which began to spring up like crazy. It also came to the forefront in the history of the church that the sacraments or ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper were often twisted so that as long as you'd been baptized and if you managed to take communion at the Mass, then surely your sins were forgiven. Well, that's not true. So the second mark of the church came to be the right observance and practice of baptism and the Lord's Supper, where baptism and the Lord's Supper are rightly and, and, and biblically observed. That was a mark of a true church. And then some of the reformers also added the biblical practices of church discipline, so that the purity of the church would be protected and preserved. We'll look at all three of those things in later chapters, baptism, Lord's Supper, and church discipline. We'll look at, at worship and I, all those things I listed. We got, we got eight more chapters to go on the church, so there's still a lot of ground to cover. So what can we take away today? I hope we've gleaned something about the development of the church as the ongoing work of God to call out a people for himself. That's been going on since the fall took place. It's still going on through the church, and though it looks different than it did in the days of Abraham and David, it's still the same work, and it's still aimed at the good of God's people and the glory of his name. So may the church grow. And may God carry on his work. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that we, unworthy as we are altogether, are in that line of your people that go all the way back to the gracious promise you made of a Redeemer to come. Thank you that that Redeemer has come. Thank you that his name is Jesus. Thank you that he has accomplished redemption for us. And thank you that he's called us together to be a part of this particular local expression of the body of Christ. Help us to take up all the responsibilities that are ours as a part of this body and to grow together for the glory of God and for our good, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, hey, hey, gentlemen, um, we don't need to set the tables up for lunch as we've gotten used to, but... It would be a great help to my setup team if if we move those screens back and leave the chairs where they are and just take the tables and stack them against this end wall right inside here of the gym so we can set them up for communion after the service this morning, okay? Thank you. Thank you.